Blog Talk Radio.
and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is uh, Sunday, October 3rd, uh, 2021. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you uh, our uh, Pan-African Newswire segment. We'll have dispatches on the expulsion of seven United Nations officials from the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia. Also, in East Africa, Kenya is facing a drought where an estimated 2.4 million people 
uh, could be impacted uh, by food deficits. The South African ruling African National Congress Party is campaigning uh, for the upcoming local government elections. We'll have details on that as well. And the current and former presidents of Mozambique uh, have been cleared in the ongoing probe surrounding, quote, hidden debt, unquote, in this southern African state. In the second hour, we continue our focus on the debates uh, that surrounded the United Nations General Assembly 76th session uh, just uh, last week. We will listen to speeches uh, from the heads of states of uh, St. Kitts and Nevis uh, in the Caribbean, Bolivia and South America, Iran and West Asia, and the Palestinian Authority also in West Asia. Finally, we review uh, some of the major issues taking place in Africa and throughout uh, the international community. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we're going to take a musical interlude uh, in the East African state of Kenya. Let's listen in.
Welcome back, and you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, uh, this special edition of our program for Sunday, uh, October the 3rd, uh, 2021. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to another edition of our program. We just heard the uh, music of uh, Kenya's D07, uh, the Shiraki Jazz. Uh, from the 1970s, yes, uh, classic uh, African music uh, here at the Pan-African Journal. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment, and these are some of the headlines in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. Our lead story uh, deals with the current situation uh, in the Horn of African nation of Ethiopia. According to the Burkina uh, News Agency, it says that a new uh, day after uh, requesting seven United Nations uh, staff members in Ethiopia uh, within 72 hours leave the country, the Ministry of uh, Ethiopia released uh, a statement explaining the decision and requesting that the United Nations to send replacements uh, to those uh, UN staff who were involved in facilitating different forms of support uh, to the Tigray People's Liberation Front. The Ethiopian government reached out uh, to the relevant uh, United Nations bodies uh, regarding the U.S. UN staff's misconduct in the course of delivering of uh, humanitarian assistance, and this happened long before the decision uh, to expel them. And that's according to a statement uh, from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, in Ethiopia. But the United Nations did not seem to have taken the matter seriously. Uh, just this last past Thursday, the United Nations Secretary General. Antonio Guterres issued a brief statement saying that he was shocked uh, by Ethiopia's action. Based on the statement uh, from uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the United Nations staff expelled from Ethiopia uh, were involved in activities that violate the memorandum of agreement uh, with the government of Ethiopia, uh, which was signed in November of 2020, and the United Nations core principles of humanitarian assistance. Uh, they were engaged Activities uh, ranging from diverting humanitarian assistance to uh, the TPLF, uh, which the Ethiopian parliament designated as a terrorist organization, to violating security arrangements and the transfer of communication devices for the TPLF forces, which was meant to be used in its military activities. Uh, Leaked information from someone who appears to be a whistleblower from within the United Nations agencies in the country indicates that some senior UN agency staff in Ethiopia were involved in practices uh, that compromise the neutrality principle. A group of countries, including France, Ireland, the United States, and UK, took Ethiopia's actions of expelling seven UN staff who violated its sovereignty uh, to the United Nations Security Council. Ethiopia seems to see the move as inappropriate and unfair. Quote, Ethiopia is deeply disappointed uh, by the fact that some countries are urging the United Nations Security Council to consider this matter, unquote, said the statement uh, from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The statement spells out expulsion, what Ethiopia had been doing to avoid it, and its commitment to multilateralism and the values enshrined in the United Nations Charter. And in other news uh, taking place uh, on the African continent, 
in the East African state of Kenya, uh, there have been reports of drought and the potential of uh, large food deficits uh, inside uh, the country. According to the Asian France Press, at least 2.4 million people in Kenya risk going hungry uh, by next month as drought ravages the north and the east of the country, a nearly threefold increase uh, from last year. That's according to the World Food Program. They issued this statement on Friday. The East African state has been hit by an accumulation of calamities in recent years, including a month-long locust invasion uh, from December of 2019 and poor rainfalls in 2020 as well as 2021, which has left the arid northern and eastern regions facing an emergency. President Uhuru Kenyatta declared the drought a natural disaster last month, with 2.1 million people already grappling with hunger, according to the National Drought Management Authority. The World Food Program's alarming projection is nearly three times the figure recorded last year between October and December, uh, when the 852,000 people were facing severe food insecurity. The U.N. agency said, quote, this drought comes right on the back of COVID-19, which has had a tremendous economic impact on livelihoods. It comes on the back of locusts and in some areas, floods. Now, the World Food Program representative and country director, Lauren Landis, uh, told this to the international press. He said that we're desperately worried uh, that the next short rainy season coming in October will also fail, and that means then we're going to be in an extremely dire situation, uh, she said. Uh, She also went on to say, I fear we're going to reach the level of 2017, our last big drought here in Kenya. I think uh, we're looking at 2.5 million people in the coming months that will uh, be impacted. East Africa endured a harrowing drought in 2017, which also brought neighboring Somalia to the brink of famine. Uh, Experts say extreme weather events are happening with increased frequency and intensity uh, due uh, to the phenomenon of climate change. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In other news, uh, the African National Congress Chairperson, Gwede Montashi, has spoken out on the party's weaknesses during its election campaign in the Northern Cape. Montashi went on a door-to-door campaign and engaged residents on service delivery issues. In his address in Ward 9, Snake Park, Francis Bard region, he said that the ANC could make a huge difference in people's lives, but there were many shortcomings. He said that, quote, what we must correct now quickly is the ability of the ANC to elect counselors, but they are unable to put together a council. When they come together, they are so poor quality that we don't have a council, and the institution can't do its work, unquote. Also related to the uh, upcoming local government elections uh, in the Republic of South Africa, the ANC wants control back of the Nelson Mandela Bay metropolitan area in the Eastern Cape. It has been controlled by the Democratic Alliance since local government elections in 2016. The metro was initially regarded as an ANC stronghold, but later the party lost support due to the alleged political infighting. ANC President Cyril Ramaphosa is in the area to woo voters. He urged voters to kick out the Democratic Alliance, accusing its administration of failing to deliver much-needed basic services 
to the people. Meanwhile, the economic freedom fighters leader, Julius Malema, is in Dimpopo encouraging people to vote ahead of the polls on November the 1st. He will be visiting Tabanzimbi and Bela Bela communities uh, earlier today. And finally, uh, in regard to the situation in the southern African state of Mozambique, according to the Mozambique uh, Information Agency, the reason that neither President Felipe Nausi nor his predecessor, Armando Guebusa, are facing charges in relation to the scandal of Mozambique's, quote, hidden deaths, unquote, is that prosecutors have not found any evidence that either of them took money from the Abu Dhabi-based group, proven best, according to Judge uh, Ifangenio Batista, uh, speaking at the Maputo City Court uh, on Thursday. Batista uh, thus answered repeated complaints uh, from Gregorio Leo, former head of the Security and Intelligence Services, uh, that he is the only member of the Joint Command of the Defense and Security Forces from the period when the debts were contracted, that's between 2013 and 2014, who is on trial. It shouldn't just be me, he declared on Thursday. We had a hierarchy. I was just a member of the Joint Command. Other people should be here. The scandal arises from the loans of over $2.2 billion U.S. billion that three fraudulent security-related companies, Prionbikos, Imatum, the Mozambique Tuna Company, and MAM, the Mozambique Asset Management, obtained from the banks Credit Suisse and the VTB of Russia on the basis of illicit loan guarantees issued by the Guabesa government. Those guarantees turned the hidden loans into hidden debt. Since when the three companies went bankrupt, the Mozambican state became liable for repaying the money. Preventrist uh, uh, was the main beneficiary. The bank sent the loan money not to the company offices in Maputo, but to Preventrist, uh, which was the sole contractor for the companies. Preventrist then sent Mozambique's fishing boats, patrol vessels, uh, radar systems, and other assets that were grossly overpriced. The independent audit of uh, Proindicus, Imantum, and MAM in 2017 showed that Preve Invest over-invoiced the assets by more than $700 million, which ensured that plenty of money was available for paying bribes and kickbacks. According to uh, Leo, uh, the Joint Command took the key decisions leading to the establishment of the three companies, but he did not see why he should be singled out. Webusa, uh, had chaired the Joint Command, and his other key members were Nausi, who was then Defense Minister, and the then Interior Minister, Alberto Mlande, uh, said the question was one of following the money. Prosecutors had gone through the finances of the members of the Joint Command in great detail. The finances of the entire Webusa family and the companies they own had been screened, and the only evidence found was against uh, Ndambi Webusa, the former president's oldest son. And you can read this article in its entirety uh, by logging on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire. And that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment. And in concluding uh, this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. Uh, It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Uh, Since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches 
in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. Now, the Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on uh, to our website uh, so you can uh, stay abreast of some of the pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do uh, is go uh, to the Pan-African Newswire at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan Journal, the worldwide uh, radio broadcast, uh, all you need to do is go uh, to the Pan African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. The programs can be shared with other potential listeners via email. They can also, the links can also be posted on blogs and websites, as well as being shared over social media networks, such as Facebook and Twitter. This is Abayomi Azikawe. Are you listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast? We'll take a musical break. We'll be back with more of our program.
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and that was the music of Detroit's own Anita Baker with the song entitled Priceless. We want to go once again uh, to listen uh, to the many contributions that were made at the recently held United Nations General Assembly, the 76th session. Uh, We're going to go to uh, an address delivered by the Prime Minister of the Caribbean Island Nation of St. Kitts, Nevis, discussing the question of reparations uh, for African enslavement and colonization. Let's listen in. And now, Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, give the floor to the distinguished representative of St. Kitts and Nevis to introduce an address by the head of government. Mr. President, Excellencies, I have the distinct honor and privilege to introduce a pre-recorded statement by the Honorable Dr. Timothy Harris, Prime Minister of the Federation of St. Kitts and Nevis. Mr. President, Mr. Secretary General, distinguished delegates, it's my privilege and honor as the Prime Minister of St. Kitts and Nevis to address the United Nations General Assembly today. On behalf of the people of St. Kitts and Nevis, I extend my congratulations to His Excellency Abdullah Shahid of Maldives the foreign minister of a similar small island developing states, on his election to the presidency of the 76th session of the UN General Assembly. I thank his predecessor for his valuable work during the 75th session and also take this opportunity to congratulate UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres for securing a second term. I pay tribute to the diligence, commitment, and perseverance he has shown in steering the UN family as best as possible through the pandemic. The theme of this General Assembly debate is fitting. It reminds us that we must keep faith in multilateralism and international cooperation to achieve our goals and rebuild sustainably. The past 18 months have challenged everyone everywhere, yet here we are, convening once more as a General Assembly to find global solutions to global problems. The battle against COVID-19 is not yet won and its devastating impact on our societies and economies continues. We believe strongly that no one is safe until everyone is safe. That requires equitable access to vaccines and other medical products and technologies. I commend the international community for its response to calls for vaccine equity And I'm pleased to say that St. Kitts and Nevis is just one of the many countries to have benefited from the COVAX facility established by the World Health Organization 
at the start of the pandemic. I also wish to thank our bilateral partners for their generosity in providing us with vaccines. St. Kitts and Nevis has 66% of its adult population fully vaccinated and over 75% of the target population has received their first dose. We are endeavoring to improve these statistics in the near future. Our citizens responded selflessly to our calls for social distancing and adhered to the other COVID-19 protocols, playing an active role in curbing the COVID-19 pandemic and helping us to overcome community spread. Healthy lifestyles remain a central element in our fight against COVID-19, particularly as we continue to prioritize the delivery of health care to people living with non-communicable diseases who, given their higher risk, are most vulnerable to the disease. The need to continue investing in a resilient health system and comprehensive public health services is paramount. Mental health and well-being are also vital, which is why we delivered a comprehensive mental health plan to provide psychosocial support through the National Counseling Center. Sadly, the economic impact of the pandemic will be felt for years to come. When it began, tourism, our biggest economic driver, ground to a halt, causing significant unemployment and underemployment. Businesses suffered as a result of lockdowns. We took action, providing social protection programs for those in need. Indeed, we implemented an easy $120 million COVID-19 stimulus package. We reduced corporate income tax for employers who retained 75% of their workforce and introduced VAT and import duty waivers for pandemic-related products. The impact of COVID-19 and development more widely, in particular, the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals, has also been significant. But instead of walking away from them, we need to work collectively even harder to achieve them. Climate change and climate-related events continue to threaten the existence of small island developing states such as ours. As the climate crisis intensifies, we witness the erosion of coasts owing to rising sea levels, fish folk struggling to maintain their livelihoods from waning oceanic diversity, families forced to relocate away from coastal areas due to the strength, intensity, and relentlessness of each passing hurricane season. Sustainable Development Goals number 13, 14, and 15 are of particular significance as they require us, among other things, to improve education and awareness of 
as well as human and institutional capacity on climate change mitigation, adaptation, impact reduction, and early warning. A less negative outcome of the pandemic has been its effect on turbocharging the digitization of our workplaces and societies. But not all countries, particularly small island developing states, have the infrastructure, the capacity and workforce skills to fully benefit from this revolution. Rebuilding sustainably requires us to re-evaluate digital accessibility, affordability, and technical assistance so that every country, regardless of income level or geographic location, can exploit the digital economy in one properly networked world. Another barrier to development that we face is the criteria employed to determine aid and financial support. This singular benchmark for measuring development, GDP per capita, is critical, but sadly, due to bias and the omission of factors, it is, in my view, simplistic and flawed. For St. Kitts and Nevis, it ignores vulnerabilities, and it prevents us from accessing critical development assistance. A set of more adequate and relevant measures encompassing social, environmental, climate-related and economic factors should be used to regulate entitlements. The use of a multidimensional vulnerability index, for example, would be a far better judge of development than simply GDP per capita. The protection of life from violent crime is also of fundamental importance and discussions surrounding small arms and light weapons remain critical to our democracy. Our position remains that the uncontrolled proliferation of the illicit trade of small arms and light weapons has significant impacts on the health and well-being, socioeconomic development, human rights, and human development of every citizen in the world. The new challenges faced as a result of technological developments must also be taken into consideration and confronted. We will also continue to lend our voice and support to the work of the United Nations with a view to bringing about an end to the misery caused by these weapons. St. Kitts and Nevis prides itself on continuing to build strong alliances and increasingly expand our international footprint. Our diplomatic ties are founded on mutual respect for and adherence to the United Nations Strata, the rule of international law, and on the appreciation of the value of human life and dignity. For this reason, I call for the lifting of the economic, commercial, and financial embargo against Cuba, and I note the incalculable damage it causes. 
during the last four years, for example, the blockade against Cuba has been reinforced with more than 240 coercive economic actions and measures reaching unprecedented levels of hostility. The government and people of Cuba have contributed much to my country, the Caribbean, and indeed the world, especially during these unprecedented times. One can only imagine the potential of their contribution to the international community were the embargo to be lifted. Furthermore, I cannot address this august body and not recognize our dear friend, the Republic of China, Taiwan. Senkits and Nevis again renews its call for Taiwan's inclusion in the international community. We strongly believe Taiwan has an important and continuing role to play in international development strategies given their great successes in so many areas. Taiwan has demonstrated that it can be a true partner in health, and we have seen its exemplary response to the pandemic firsthand in St. Kitts and Nevis and other parts of the world. My country looks forward to Taiwan being included in the United Nations system and its meetings, mechanisms, and activities. St. Kitts and Nevis is pleased that a few days ago, we met to commemorate the 20th anniversary of the Durban Declaration and Program of Action. It is important for the world to be united against racism, racial discrimination, xenophobia, and related intolerance. Untold suffering and evil were inflicted on millions of men, women, and children of African descent as a result of the transatlantic slave trade, colonialism, apartheid, and many of the other ills of our history and other crimes against humanity. We welcome the establishment of the Permanent Forum for People of African Descent, which will serve as a consultation mechanism for people of African descent and other interested stakeholders, and as a platform for improving the quality of life and livelihoods of people of African descent. We make, as other CARICOM heads of government did way back in 2013, a clarion call for reparations and reparatory justice. We subsequently formed the CARICOM Reparations Committee and the establishment of the 10-point plan that outlines the path to reconciliation and justice for victims of crimes against humanity and their descendants. We hope that this meeting has invoked a new momentum to pursue action to right the wrongs that are still manifested today. In conclusion, Mr. President, we are all in this together. My hope is that we will emerge from COVID-19 stronger and more united than ever before. There is no better place 
than this General Assembly to forge a positive consensus in order to build a better future for our children, our grandchildren, and indeed their children. We are indeed living in unprecedented times, and we have responded admirably so far. But we must continue to be proactive, relentless, resilient, and willing to share our ideas and resources as members of the same brotherhood of nations. We look, therefore, to the future with hope and with great expectation. I thank you. On behalf of the General Assembly, I would like to thank the Prime Minister, Minister for Sustainable Development, National Security, People Empowerment and Constituency Empowerment of St. Kitts and Nevis for the statement just delivered. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, an address uh, delivered by Dr. Timothy Harris, the Prime Minister of St. Kitts and Nevis in the Caribbean. Uh, addressing a number of issues, including uh, the question of uh, reparations uh, for people of African descent. But right now we want to move uh, to another uh, state uh, within the Western Hemisphere, and that is Bolivia, uh, which has undergone a significant amount of U.S. Uh, imperialist intervention and destabilization over the last uh, two years. Let's listen uh, to the address uh, delivered uh, from Bolivia. The Assembly will hear an address by His Excellency Luis Alberto Arce Catajora, Constitutional President of the Plurinational State of Bolivia. I request protocol to escort His Excellency. On behalf of the General Assembly, I have the honor to welcome to the United Nations His Excellency Luis Alberto Arce Catagora, Constitutional President of the Plurinational State of Bolivia, and to invite him to address the Assembly. Thank you very much, fellow President of the General Assembly of the United Nations, Abdullah Shahid, Brother Secretary General. Antonio Guterres, fellow heads of state and government, ministers of foreign affairs, and delegates present in the room. First of all, allow me to hail your election as president of this assembly, as well as I would like to congratulate the Secretary General on being re-elected for a second term. We uh, find ourselves in the most uh, important forum created by uh, humankind following the Second World War. It was designed as a forum to debate, to reflect, and to seek effective solutions to the various crises that our planet is confronting. The United Nations Organization was designed based on the principle of legal equality of states and to which can be added political equality. 
It was it was created to avoid having our planet uh, once again experience uh, armed clashes among states that endanger world peace that we all uh, aspire to. Now these goals have not been fully met because the ambition to control access to natural resources and to dominate entire nations have continued to lead to direct armed invasions, criminal blockades, and indirect interventions in the military, political, economic, and even the media spheres. The COVID-19 pandemic has demonstrated how fragile our societies and states are. It has created unprecedented negative impacts in such areas as uh, health care, the economy, education, uh, among other areas. It has uh, put at risk the achievement of the goals of the 2030 Agenda within the established timetable. Now, in addition to the multidimensional crisis of capitalism, the economic crisis, social, environmental, food, and energetic crisis, we can now add a sanitary crisis. At the same time, this crisis has clearly illustrated that inequality between the main capitalist countries and those on the periphery continues. Euphemistically, these two groups are denominated developed and developing countries. The growth in poverty and extreme poverty and the inequitable concentration of vaccines has been uh, condemned by the World Health Organization itself. According to available data, to date, only 30% of the global population that requires vaccines has received at least one dose of an anti-COVID-19 vaccine and barely 15.5% is fully vaccinated. At the same time, only 1.1% of the population in low-income countries has received at least one dose. Capitalism has transformed all areas of social life into merchandise. And health has not managed to escape its tentacles. Medical science must uh, be at the service of humankind without any kind of geographical, political, social discrimination or discrimination based on nationality. Access to vaccines must be considered as a human right. We cannot remain indifferent or even less to seek, seek to profit uh, from health at a time of pandemic. We are fully convinced that the pandemic could be uh, overcome with the broader coverage uh, of vaccination. The World Health Organization has determined that when... Uh, 70% of this goal is reached, 70% of vaccination, we could overcome the pandemic. However, access to vaccines uh, 
especially countries on the periphery, is uh, limited. In this context, we believe that it is important, that the following is important. Transnational uh, companies that produce medications should lift their patents and share their knowledge and technology for the production of uh, COVID-19 vaccines. And through our joint efforts, we can ensure immediate access to vaccines to all people in all countries of the world. Second, that the that supranational organizations such as the United Nations and governments work in solidarity to avoid the hoarding of vaccines and promote the universal, just, equitable, and timely access to vaccines, as well as to medications and medical products in order to tackle the COVID-19 pandemic. Current circumstances created by the pandemic are in fact an appeal to solidarity and international cooperation among brethren nations in favor of life. In the fight against COVID-19 around our planet, thousands and thousands of healthcare workers uh, fulfilled their role, and we would like to pay tribute to them, and we would like to express our gratitude to them for their work. In Europe, in spite of its problems, countries managed to reach an agreement and have allocated billions of dollars to reactivate its economy. The United States, similarly, has managed to reach a consensus amongst its politicians to, to allocate billions uh, towards its economic recovery. However, and unfortunately, in Latin America and the Caribbean and Africa, the states and governments do not have organizations that are focused on the fight for life. Quite to the contrary, organizations such as the Organization of American States, OAS, divide us, promote coup d'etat, and generate instability. Fellow President, the COVID-19 crisis has also demonstrated vulnerabilities and inequalities in the financial system and in the global economy. In a uh, closely interconnected world, it is essential to deepen solidarity, complementarity, and to respond to the needs of our peoples in the post-pandemic context. To do this, it's necessary to strengthen integration and cooperation so, so that we can confront the multidimensional impact on our economies, on our industries, and our, on our capacity to uh, achieve uh, uh, food security based on our sovereignty. In this context, it is essential to rebuild our economies in order to ensure social protection and health care. In other words, we must safeguard and protect workers, farmers, indigenous peoples, original peoples, micro and small businesses, and entrepreneurs. We should protect them just as, uh, as we protect banks, large corporations, or uh, transnational corporations. To achieve the Sustainable Development Goals, it is essential that we confront the risks 
that uh, the pandemic has uh, uh, put before us. Bearing this in mind, we are analyzing and proposing comprehensive solutions to the vulnerability that has been generated by uh, indebtedness in uh, developing countries compared their debt to the main capitalist countries and financial institutions. With this in mind, comprehensive measures are important that international financial organizations could implement based on a sustainable vision and that do not lead to additional burdens or further in debt beneficiary states. States must put priority on eradicating extreme poverty, reducing inequality in all its dimensions. States should focus on access to basic services for their population. And we must assume in a responsible way the challenge of building a future based on solidarity, complementarity, sustainability, and cooperation among peoples. However, we will not make much progress in uh, diminishing or eliminating these uh, problems, such as poverty, uh, as long as we continue in the current economic e global uh, order, which is unjust. Wherever we see, we see injustice, and uh, which continues to prevail in uh, um, and impose uh, inequality in international trade and puts obstacles towards industrialization. Furthermore, we can we have to continue to highlight that unfortunately the digital gap persists and rap the rapid progress in digital technologies and electronic trade e-trade has become an instrument that could help uh, economic recovery. However, the digital divide prevents these benefits from being shared equitably. And when this happens, digital technologies and e-trade become instruments to merely consolidate this unjust global order. Uh, bearing this in mind, the plurinational state of Bolivia is proposing to move forward on on reaching agreements with multilateral financial organizations to refinance or to ease the ex external debt at the global level and to support social policies for populations uh, in a situation of vulnerability and to do this based on an approach of uh, sustainable and comprehensive development. By the same token, it's important for the various international financial mechanisms to... Uh, to activate concessional lending, that they design and implement long-term and medium-term measures to ensure the achievement of the 2030 development agenda. Fellow President, our planet, our common home, our Mother Earth, still is suffering the terrible consequences of consumerism and excessive depredation of natural resources. And once again, we believe that the capitalist system is one of the main causes of the climate crisis. Based on the cosmovision of indigenous peoples, there is an interdependence between human beings and nature. This is why, as a state, we are promoting a new model of coexistence 
for for the well-being of our people, which our people call living well. It promotes a change in the uh, in the approach to life, leaving behind predation, irrational uh, competition, and excessive consumerism, and this insatiable. Uh, 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 search to accumulate profits at the cost of Mother Earth and the life on our planet. This, this, this uh, approach, this cosmovision of our indigenous peoples is valid for all the uh, peoples of the world because what capitalism, in fact, is putting at, at risk is humanity itself and nature itself. Now, to take the path towards living well implies that our public policies and ways of life be in harmony and in balance with nature. We must uh, restore our relationship with Mother Earth because what's at stake is our survival as a species. The growing threat represented by non-economic uh, risks for financial and macroeconomic stability. I'm thinking of the climate crisis, obviously. This has uh, demonstrated the need to formulate policies that, that help in us move towards a new economic model. Now, uh, consistent with our, th with our thinking, we have, built a, we have developed a Bolivian vision for the United Nations uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change. We are proposing that all, country, all states' parties meet in the framework of the COP26 uh, in Glasgow, uh, work together, and uh, we would like to suggest the following for this uh, based on this. Number one, the only real solution to eliminate the increase in temperatures uh, uh, to 1.5 degrees Celsius requires the distributing uh, the carbon budget among countries based on the criteria of climate justice and based on the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities. Number two, the main capitalist countries must assume the climate debt and the historic compensation toward the rest of uh, countries of the world through financial cooperation and transfer of technologies and the uh, development of capacities, thus, thus implementing the agreements that have been signed to date. Number three, it's essential to incorporate the knowledge, practices, and experiences of uh, indigenous peoples and nations in building societies and ecosystems that are resilient to climate change. Number four, it, there's an urgent need to strengthen and, and step up efforts of countries to fight the climate crisis. In particular, the approaches that are not based on the carbon market. Efforts uh, should be effective in reducing domestic uh, greenhouse gas emissions. We are convinced of the urgent need to reform the global architecture that guides financial, investment, trade, development, environmental, and social policies around the world. Now, in this same context, we welcome uh, the uh, holding of the summit on food, food systems because 
the health and the life of humanity depend on their access to food. We must strengthen and acknowledge the important contribution to the economy and preservation of nature that small-scale farmers and indigenous uh, populations make. By the same token, I would like to take this opportunity to congratulate this assembly for the very important decision adopted in declaring a decade of indigenous languages which will begin next year. Languages transmit culture, knowledge, skills, and the history of peoples. This is why it's important for our states throughout in these years and in the future to promote actions to, uh, to, to, to revitalize and strengthen indigenous languages, which are part and parcel of the uh, cultural wealth of humankind. Fellow President, the charter of our organization is the main reference in safeguarding international law that governs relations among our, our states. For this reason, the United Nations organization has a preeminent role, especially in safeguarding human rights. This is why it is inconceivable that powerful countries take actions and measures that are unilateral and that generate negative effects against the right to life, to health, to food, and to education of millions of people. Just has, has been stated in this General Assembly on many, in many opportunities, these coercive measures, uh, in fact, are, are applied extraterritorially and unilaterally. This is not only immoral, but in fact goes against international law and uh, contravenes the charter itself of the United Nations. It weakens multilateralism. These measures are even more to be condemned uh, and rejected when they affect, when they intentionally and directly affect the exercise and enjoyment of human rights. Human rights are uh, are inherent. They, they're in, inviolable. They cannot be double standards. Access to vaccines, med medicine, medical products, and essential goods such as food cannot be subjected to political interests. Nor should the right to life or the right to health should be used as a political mechanism to put pressure at the expense of the lives of millions of people that depend on this, especially in the time of pandemic. We reject any unilateral measure aimed at preventing our countries from exercising their right to determine freely their political, economic, and social systems. A clear demonstration of the application of unilateral measures is the inhumane and criminal commercial and financial blockade against Cuba, which puts at risk the lives of more than 11 million citizens of this country at a, in the midst of a pandemic. It's a crime against humanity, but at the same time, it is a regrettable example of how the decisions of this assembly are not implemented and complied with by certain countries. It is frustrating to admit that year after year, in spite of the virtually global unanimity in condemning the blockade, those responsible for this crime 
ignore the clamor of the entire world. Fellow President, before concluding this intervention in the General Assembly, allow me to inform the member states that the plurinational state of Bolivia, following an unfortunate coup d'etat that took place in November of 2019, following that, last October 2020, we restored democracy thanks to the unity, combat, and uh, uh, conscience of the Bolivian uh, people, which was uh, confirmed uh, in elections. And we are recovering our intercultural democracy as well as our political, economic, and social stability, which has cost us a great deal of work to build. The rupture in the constitutional order in my country involved the participation of national actors, politicians that do not have the support of the people in elections, uh, unethical members of the police and the armed forces, civic committees, certain members of the Catholic hierarchy and uh, um, of the media. However, it also included the participation of the OAS through its Secretary General, Luis Almagro, and also the participation of other governments, such as the former government of Argentina, which sent uh, weapons and munitions to uh, uh, those behind the coup d'etat, and the representatives of the European Union and other non international non-governmental organizations. The last report presented by an international group of independent experts identified that in the plurinational state of Bolivia, serious violations of human rights were committed, massacres, and summary executions. Our commitment to the Bolivian people is that we ensure justice for the 38 lives lost, for the hundreds of wounded, detained, for those who were persecuted, uh, who were who were sent in exile and ex for the grave violations of human rights that were uh, conducted during uh, the de facto government. Because justice is an essential precondition of any democracy and to, for the construction of a true social peace. Unfortunately, the right to the presumption of innocence and due process was systematically uh, uh, violated. Persecution and, and uh, jailing of innocent people became a daily occurrence, a normal occurrence. Humiliation, rep repression, uh, and, and uh, the, ra the racist and sexist use of force aimed against uh, our population who were mobilized to, to defend their rights, most of them indigenous peoples, workers, and farmers, was something that occurred uh, daily. Strong and dignified nations will always be built on the basis of the lessons learned from the tragedies uh, that they've experienced, thus collectively building social peace through the process of memory, truth, and justice. And that is the commitment we've made to the Bolivian people. My government, democratically elected, in spite of uh, multiple difficulties, including the COVID-19 pandemic, is making... Is, is making every possible effort to uh, restore stability and economic growth with social justice. With the support of over 55% of the votes of the Bolivian people, we have the responsibility of defending our independence and dignity as a free and sovereign state. The plurinational state of Bolivia uh, states in this global forum uh, re and re 
states that it has the right to uh, obtain a free and sovereign access to the Pacific Ocean through dialogue and coordination with the Republic of Chile in accordance uh, with uh, a decision of the International Court of Justice with its, which in its decision on the 1st of October of 2018 urged Chile and Bolivia to, to work towards resolving this problem. Bolivia takes uh, paragraph 176 of this decision as uh, a, a suggestion to to resolve this matter, and I quote, maintaining a dialogue and exchange in a spirit of good uh, neighborliness in order to uh, deal with topics uh, uh, involving the access to the Sea of Bolivia. This would require uh, negotiations among the parties, uh, and the, end of quote. Fellow President, processes of integration which are taking place around the world should be based on the effective solution, resolution of the major topics that remain unresolved in, uh, in Latin America, such as the topic of the sovereignty of the uh, Mal um, Malvinas Islands, uh, and uh, the fact that Bolivia does not have access to the sea is, is, a, is an unresolved problem which should be solved on the basis of diplomacy and understanding in this new era. In this assembly, we'd like to reiterate our commitment to the principles of the United Nations Charter, the goals established in the Sustainable Development Goals and the 2030 Agenda, and our commitment to eradicate all form of discrimination and racism. Multilateralism is an ideal tool to ensure greater dialogue, cooperation, and the search for solutions to the problems that humankind faces will make it possible for us to reestablish uh, the uh, supremacy of international law and preserve uh, uh, social justice and peace, as well as re reconfigure a weakened international order. There's no doubt that the challenges to which we, which we confront every day are increasingly more complex. If we want a better future for current and future generations, we must think about uh, uh, the path to take in order to overcome the polarization in the global architecture and in its place join efforts to promote international cooperation that allow us allows us to confront current problems uh, on a stronger footing fellow president and uh, nations of the world we find ourselves at an unprecedented uh, moment where humankind the future of humankind depends on the decisions that we will make it is our duty to build a more just and more democratic world based on more solidarity. Let's work to uh, put an end to the to, to slow down the climate crisis and to and to build equality so that to live well means access to education, health care, food, a dignified job, a comprehensive development, and true harmony with Mother Earth. Let's work to ensure the self-determination of peoples and uh, lasting peace. Thank you very much. On behalf of the General Assembly, I wish to thank the Constitutional President of the Plurinational State of Bolivia for the statement just made, and I request protocol to escort His Excellency. Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, a special edition of our program, and uh, we just heard from the President of Bolivia in South America uh, in his address before the United Nations General Assembly 
76th session that was held uh, just uh, last week uh, and week before last, uh, based in New York City. Uh, many of these statements uh, were pre-recorded, and uh, others were delivered uh, in person. We'll take a break, and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back, and you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, this special edition of our program for Sunday, uh, October 3rd, 2021, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and uh, that was the voice of Phyllis Hyman with a song entitled Walk Away. And right now we want to move uh, into the United Nations General Assembly 76th session. We're going to hear the address uh, delivered uh, by President Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority. Uh, let's listen in. أتشرف بأن أقدم لكم الكلمة المسجلة لسيادة الرئيس محمود عباس رئيس دولة فلسطين أمام الدورة السادسة والسبعين للجمعية العامة متمنيا لدورتك بالنجاح في مواجهة التحديات التي تواجه شعوب العالم وشعبنا الذين يتطلعون إلينا للقيام بواجباتنا لإحقاق حقوقهم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم سعادة سيد عبد الله شهيد رئيس الجمعية العامة معالي السيد أنطونيو غوتيريس الأمين العام للأمم المتحدة السيدات والسادة رؤساء وأعضاء الوفود السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته في هذا العام يكون قد مر على النكبة الفلسطينية 73 عاما حيث طرد أكثر من نصف الشعب الفلسطيني في حينه من أرضهم وتم الاستيلاء على املاكهم وانا وعائلتي oh, welcome back and uh, we want to apologize for not having a english transition uh, translation uh, for the speech of uh, president Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority and we'll be back in the next episode of the Pan African Journal uh, with that address uh, and it will be accompanied by english translation and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, uh, the worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Uh, today is Sunday, uh, October 3rd, uh, 2021, and uh, we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. And uh, we will, of course, uh, now... Uh, take a brief break. But we want to remind our listeners uh, that uh, you can uh, have access to today's program uh, by merely logging on to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And also, if you want to read the Pan-African Newswire, you can do that uh, at uh, the following address, and that's at Pan-African News. Uh, dot blogspot dot com. We'll take a break, and uh, of course, uh, we'll be back uh, with more uh, of our program uh, for uh, this week. And uh, we'd also uh, like to remind our listeners uh, that, uh, of course, uh, the situation uh, in the international community and Africa in particular is covered uh, on a daily basis and 24 hours a day uh, by uh, the Pan-African Newswire, and uh, as we mentioned before, 
all you need to do is log on uh, to uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, Detroit's own Motown Sound uh, with Martha Reeves and the Vandellas uh, with the tune entitled Nowhere to Run. And uh, right now we want to move um, to uh, the United Nations General Assembly 76th session, the address delivered by the President of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Let's listen in. I now give the floor to the distinguished representative of the Islamic Republic of Iran introduce an address by the head of state. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Mr. President, I have the honor to introduce the pre-recorded statement by His Excellency, Mr. Sayyid Ibrahim Raisi, the President of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Thanks a lot. 
in the name of God, the compassion of the merciful. Praise is due to Allah, the Lord of the worlds, and his peace and blessings be upon Muhammad and his pure household and his select companions. Mr. Chairman, at the outset, allow me to extend my congratulations to Your Excellency for your election as the chair of the 76th session of the UN General Assembly. Ladies and gentlemen, Iran is the land of culture and civilization, the land of knowledge and spirituality, the land of perseverance and independence. The Iranian people are monotheist and patriotic. They have their unique identity and love to explore the world. For hundreds of years, our nation have safeguarded their right to self-determination and freedom against the hegemonists and have made their country the most progressive in the election-based political system in the West of Asia. The Islamic Revolution was indeed a great leap for the fulfillment of national and Islamic ideals of Iranians, including freedom, independence and religious democracy. I, as the elected president of the great people of Iran, am honored to be their representative to convey to the world at large the message of rationality, justice and freedom, which are the three most fundamental principles of the life of the contemporary man. However, those three principles that all the Abrahamic religions have in common would not be able to attain their purpose without spirituality. Freedom and justice as two sacred and innocent words that are too broad to define are indeed very tough and intricate when it comes to practicing them. Freedom means the right to think, decide and act for all the human beings. Peace and lasting security are tied to the administration of justice. And basically, the divine prophets emerged so that people would demand justice and exercise their rights. Justice and freedom may be achieved only when the rights of all nations are fulfilled. As a matter of fact, any violation of the rights of nations will more than anything endanger global peace and security. Ladies and gentlemen, this year two scenes made history. One was on January the 6th when the US Congress was attacked by the people and two when the people of Afghanistan were dropped down from the US planes in August. From the capital to Kabul, one clear message was sent to the world. The United States hegemonic system has no credibility, whether inside or outside the country. What is seen in our region today proves that not only the hegemonist and the idea of hegemony, but also the project of imposing westernized identity have failed miserably. The result of seeking hegemony has been blood spilling and instability and ultimately defeat and escape. Today, the US does not get to exit Iraq and Afghanistan, but is expelled. And at the same time, it is the oppressed people from Palestine and Syria to Yemen and Afghanistan, as well as the US taxpayers who have to pay for this lack of rationality. Today, the world doesn't care about America first or America is back. If rationality prevails in the minds of the decision makers, they have to realize that nation's perseverance is stronger than the power of the superpowers.
Over the past decade, the U.S. has been making the mistake of modifying its way of war with the world instead of changing its way of life. An erroneous path cannot be brought to fruition by merely adopting a different method. Sanctions are the U.S. new way of war with the nations of the world. Sanctions against the Iranian nation started not with my country's nuclear program. They even predate the Islamic Revolution and go back to the year 1951 when oil nationalization went underway in Iran, which in turn led to a military coup backed by the Americans and the Britons against the then government of Iran, which had been elected by the people. Sanctions, and especially sanctions on medicine at the time of COVID-19 pandemic are crimes against humanity. The Holy Quran introduces the destruction of nature and mankind as a major characteristic of the tyrants. The Islamic Republic of Iran proposes that any kind of sanction-induced restriction or disruption in the supply of good health and environment as to humanitarian issues be declared forbidden. Moreover, I, on behalf of the Iranian nation and millions of refugees hosted by my country, would like to condemn the continued illegal U.S. sanctions, especially in the area of humanitarian items, and demand that this organized crime against humanity be recorded as a symbol and reality of the so-called American human rights. Despite the fact that the Islamic Republic of Iran was keen from the outset to purchase and import COVID-19 vaccines from reliable international sources, it faced inhumane medical sanctions. Therefore, from the very beginning, we started to sustainably produce vaccines domestically. In addition to peaceful nuclear and satellite technologies, Iran is the medical hub of the region and numerous Iranian physicians and scientists such as Avicenna shine in the history of humankind. Knowledge that is beneficial to humanity cannot be sanctioned. We ourselves have been able to produce fuel for the Tehran research reactor which makes radio pharmaceuticals for more than one million cancer patients in Iran. We have also made astonishing progress in the area of biotechnology and stem cells in spite of all sanctions. And today, despite all sanctions targeting human rights, we have become one of the manufacturers of COVID-19 vaccines. Cooperation amongst the countries of the world in the realm of health and especially on vaccines is tantamount to helping the spirit of humanity and the policy based on divinity, humanity and international relations. Coronavirus is a wake-up call for the whole world, reminding us once again that the security of all human beings are interdependent. Crises in the human societies such as violence, poverty, unemployment, moral and economic corruption, collapse of family foundations, regional wars, organized terrorism and environmental crises are all the results of inattention to the principles of rationality, justice and freedom. Ladies and gentlemen, the strategic thoughts of the Islamic Republic of Iran are rooted in the ideas of the founder of the Islamic Revolution, the late Imam Khomeini. May his soul rest in peace. 
as well as in the genuine concepts of true Islam, that is, rationality, prudence and pondering, and have resulted in the resistance in line with the national interests of countries. Speaking about the rights of nations without speaking of the obligations of the governments cannot bring about the fulfillment of the rights, as the independence of a nation is its freedom. The Islamic Revolution supports this kind of freedom and hence obstructs extremism. And this is the nature of the true strength of the Islamic Republic of Iran, which does good to all. The Islamic Republic of Iran is inspiring, and as such, the power emanating from it creates security. The security-making model of the Islamic Republic of Iran is based on forming intra-regional mechanisms through diplomacy that is pivoted on and free from outside interferences. It has been our policy to strive for the preservation of stability and territorial integrity of all the countries of the region, if not for the power and role of Iran alongside the governments and peoples of Syria and Iraq, as well as the selfless efforts of martyrs Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis and General Qasem Soleimani. Today, ISIS would be the Mediterranean neighbors of Europe. And of course, ISIS will not be the last wave of extremism. The new drive to come up with the Cold War risk divisions will not help foster the security of humans by isolating independent countries. An arbitrary attitude is not the way to solve terrorism, because terrorism has its roots in various crises such as identity and economy. The fact that modern lives have become devoid of meaning and spirituality as well as the spread of poverty, discrimination and oppression have helped the rise of terrorism. The increasing growth of indigenous terrorism in the West bears witness to this bitter truth. Even more bitter is the use of terrorism as an instrument for foreign policy, because you cannot fight terrorism with double standards. You cannot make a terrorist group such as ISIS in a certain place and claim to fight it somewhere else. After first seeking the grace of the Almighty God, the solution to skirmishes and conflicts in our region lies in the following. Making the will of nations rule over their own destiny by referring to the results of public vote. But in order for this to materialize, two basic preconditions need be met. One, halting the aggressions of the outsiders and occupation. And two, the sincere cooperation of governments to counter terrorism. The military presence of the United States in Syria and Iraq is the biggest hindrance to the establishment of democracy and will of nations. Freedom does not fit in the backpacks of soldiers coming from outside the region. If an inclusive government having an effective participation of all ethnicities shouldn't emerge to run Afghanistan, security will not be restored to the country, and like occupation, Paternalism is also doomed to failure. The humanitarian crisis in Yemen is very worrying and the world needs to break its silence towards crimes against humanity. The solution? The speedy and unconditional stop to the Yemeni aggression, opening of channels for providing humanitarian aid and facilitation of constructive talks between Yemeni groups. The occupier Zahani's regime is the organizer of the biggest state terrorism whose agenda is to slaughter women and children in Gaza and the West Bank.
Today, an all-out blockade has turned Gaza to the biggest prison in the world. The so-called deal of the century failed, just like any other deal forced on Palestinians. There is only one solution. Holding a referendum with the participation of all Palestinians, of all religions and ethnicities, including Muslims, Christians and Jews. This solution was set forth by the supreme leader of the Islamic Republic of Iran many years ago, which is now registered as one of the official documents of the United Nations. Mr. Chairman, today the whole world, including the Americans themselves, have admitted that the project of countering the Iranian people, which manifested itself in the form of violating the JCPOA and was followed by the maximum pressure and arbitrary withdrawal from an internationally recognized agreement, has totally failed. However, the policy of maximum tyranny is still on. We want nothing more than what is rightfully ours. We demand the implementation of international rules. All parties must stay true to the nuclear deal and the UN resolution in practice. Fifteen reports released by the IAEA have attested to the adherence of Iran to its commitments. However, the United States has not yet discharged its obligation, which is lifting sanctions. It has encroached upon the agreement, withdrawn from it, and levied even more sanctions on my people. The United States mistakenly believed it would render us desperate and devastated, but our perseverance has yielded results, and will always do. For the smart and dynamic resistance of the Islamic Republic of Iran comes from our strategic rationality, and we don't trust the promises made by the US government. It is the strategic policy of the Islamic Republic of Iran to consider the production and stockpiling of atomic weapons as forbidden, and that based on the religious decree by His Eminence, the Supreme Leader. Nukes have no place in our defense doctrine and deterrence policy. The Islamic Republic considers useful the talks whose ultimate outcome is the lifting of all oppressive sanctions while decisively defending all its rights and the interests of its people, Iran is keen to have large-scale political and economic cooperation and convergence with the rest of the world. I seek effective interaction with all the countries of the world, especially with our neighbors, and shake their hands warmly. A new era has begun. The Islamic Republic of Iran is ready to place part for a better world. A world brimful of rationality, justice, freedom, morality and spirituality. Thank you all for your attention. Peace and mercy of Allah be upon you. On behalf of the General Assembly, I wish to thank the President of the Islamic Republic of Iran for the statement just made. I now give the floor to the distinguished representative of Chile to introduce an address by the head of state. 
Welcome back, and that was uh, the President of the Islamic Republic of Iran uh, speaking before the United Nations General Assembly, the 76th session uh, that was held uh, just uh, last month uh, in uh, New York City, based in New York City, although uh, many of the addresses uh, were uh, pre-recorded. Uh, some were delivered live as well. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with our concluding segment. I can't stand the rain against my window, bringing back sweet memories. Yeah, when the rain, do you remember? voice of Ann Peoples and I Can't Stand the Rain, and we're here at the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. And uh, today is uh, Sunday, October 3rd, 2021. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Our concluding segment is a report uh, from the Africa Live, uh, CGTN, and uh, this examines uh, events taking place in Africa and throughout the international community. Let's listen in. This is CGTN, China Global Television Network. Algeria recalls ambassador from France in protest over alleged interference in its internal affairs. 
former Tigray government official in court as tensions deepened between the United Nations and Ethiopia over staff expulsion. And hundreds of protests in the United States over restrictions on abortion imposed by state governments. This is Africa Live. Hello and welcome to the show. I am Penina Nakaribe. Let's have a look at other stories coming up this hour. A direct flight from Libyan capital Tripoli has touched down in Cairo for the first time since 2014 as connection resumes. And in sports, South Africa eyes hosting rights for the 2021 FIFA Club World Cup. Algeria has recalled its ambassador from Paris for consultations over comments by French President Emmanuel Macron as he is reported saying Algeria is ruled by a political military system. The Algerian presidency has released a statement calling it an inadmissible interference in its internal affairs. Macron was also reported describing the former French colony as having an official history which has been totally rewritten. Those remarks have been denied by Macron himself. The two countries relations are tense following France's decision to cut the number of visas it issues to Algeria. A former senior official in an interim government for Ethiopia's Tigray region has appeared in court over allegations of inciting conflict between the Tigrayan people and the central government, according to his lawyer. Soon after war broke out in November 2020, the federal government seized the Tigray capital and appointed an interim administration. Abraha Desta's court appearance comes a day after the UN Security Council held a closed-door meeting to discuss the expulsion of seven UN officials by Ethiopia. Government. Let's get more now from CGTN's Groom Chala. He's live for us from Addis Ababa. Groom, what more can you tell us about this former official accused of fueling the conflict between the government and the Tigrayan people? Penina arrested on Thursday night. Abra Adessa was accused of inciting conflict between the, the federal government and the Tigray regional state, as you've said, uh, after he wrote an open letter for the mayor of Addis Ababa city, Adana Chabebe. Uh, calling for an, uh, an unleashed arrest of Tigrayans to be uh, stopped. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the police is also accusing him of uh, holding illegal firearm in his possession. So he has appeared in court on Saturday and expecting another appointment uh, uh, in uh, that uh, court. Uh, a few background. Uh, Avradesa is a former leader of a Tigray opposition uh, party named Arena. He was once or twice also was arrested by the, the TPLF before. And after the Tipper Federal Force uh, took over McAlee City, he was assigned as a social affairs bureau head for the provisional administration uh, by the federal government. Now he's detained and he's waiting for his trial. The government is saying that everything is going to be handled according to the rule and the law of the land, and we should expect to see results in the next few days. All right, let's talk about the seven UN staff that were expelled by Ethiopia. The world is also awaiting the country's response to the pressure to let them, the UN staff, resume duties in the country. What's the latest on this? So the international pressure is continuing, Penina, as you might expect, as the UN is firm standing, calling on the Ethiopian government to reverse its decision of expelling those seven UN aid workers, most of them from the UN Ota. The Ethiopian government also is remaining firm. We say that it has a right to expel a
people, especially those representing the United Nations, if and when they are found meddling in the internal affairs of the country, walking away from their uh, official mandate of serving the people who are in need in the northern part of the country at the moment, or people across the country needing for humanitarian uh, aid. Tomorrow, by the way, Penina, the Ethiopian uh, government is going to be formed, the new one, under Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed's uh, uh, Prosperity Party. We are expecting a few more developments in his uh, speech uh, when he's uh, perhaps uh, going to take office uh, after the parliament decides to do so. So we have to wait as well tomorrow uh, to hear the latest. But so far what we know is the foreign ministry is firm standing that it is demanding the replacement of these seven people uh, without any uh, uh, apologies uh, from uh, any party. And then uh, they are also waiting for the UN to, to uh, put some kind of explanation as to why these people uh, have taken measures of meddling in the security and internal affairs uh, of uh, the nation, Penina. All right, Groom, we appreciate the update. Thank you very much for joining us, Groom Chala, live in Addis Ababa. The management at Angola's largest open-pit diamond mine, Katoka, says an overflow pipeline that ruptured near a tailings dam has now been repaired and the spill contained with minimal environmental damage. The rupture in July caused mining waste known as tailings to leak into the Lova River, a tributary of the Chikapa River in the neighboring Democratic Republic of Congo. Angela Kripler spoke to the mine management. Management confirmed that following the July 27th rupture, Inspection teams identified the rupture point and also surveyed and scanned the dam structure and pipes to check for any more cracks using drones and geophysical radar. The red-colored mining waste, or sediment, was plain to see. Downstream, we were building dams. The purpose was to retain, to hold the sediment. At the same time, mine teams were on the banks of the two affected rivers taking water samples, which were sent to independent laboratories for analysis. There were no heavy metals. All the parameters were in accordance with what is permitted, except for turbidity as well as the color. The laboratory tests also confirmed the amount of red-colored waste or tailing sediment in the rivers was above normal. The actual extent of what was happening during this leak is 26 grams per liter, 26 grams of sediment per liter. The mine says it brought in external specialists and academics to monitor and assess the biodiversity of one of the affected rivers. We made a so-called technical scientific expedition where certain universities made part of that expedition, as well as Angola's environment ministry, certain independent organizations, environmental institutes, private companies, and that was a whole expedition throughout the whole course of the river to see, to assess, actually, the biodiversity of that course of the whole river. Citing the DRC's environment, Minister Reuters reported that 12 people died and 4,400 fell sick in the Southern Democratic Republic of Congo following the tailings leak. Mine management says their research of the river on the Angola side shows no such impacts. Well, in all the area affected from Katoka to Mark 13, which is the border between Angola and Congo, there have been no deaths, illnesses or sicknesses registered. The matter remains unresolved. The mines claiming that its leak didn't cause those deaths, while the Democratic Republic of Congo government are claiming compensation. I'm Angelo Coppola for CG10 in Johannesburg, South Africa.
Let's get the DRC side of this story. We have our correspondent, Chris Chamringa, joining us live from Kinshasa. Chris, the DRC government said in August that at least 12 people had died from suspected effects of that leak from the Katoka Diamond Mine in Angola into the Chikapa River. Thousands were said to be sick from this. Now, the mining company says no such effects were proven. What's the latest from the DRC side? Yes, Penny and I spoke to a senior official from the Ministry of Environment here in the DRC and it said that the Angolan mining firm can say whatever they please. What they know for a fact is that the, 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 there was a leak, a very serious leak that turned uh, the river, river Chikapa red and that they confirmed from the local officials in that area that 12 people died and 4,400 people fell sick because of drinking contaminated water. And they also there was a number of fish that died and uh, people who were complaining of diarrhea. <coughs> the government here still maintains that they need to be, uh, those people need to be compensated. The victims of this accident by the Angolan mining firm need to be compensated. The Angolan company, Katoka, said they had offered some food and other relief items to the people, but the, the Congolese are saying it's not enough. Now, we also spoke to some officials from the Angolan embassy here last month about this demand by the DRC for compensation, and they say that uh, this matter has been taken up at a very high level by officials from both countries. He was a diplomat who refused to divulge what actions will be taken, but he said that they will ensure that they come up with a resolution that, you know, uh, is, is uh, 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 it's, uh, acceptable to all parties affected by this uh, disaster. Penina? Okay, so speaking of resolutions acceptable to everybody, what's happening on the ground there in DRC? What's being done to assist those allegedly affected by this leak the government mentioned? Yes, so Penina, when this uh, accident happened, the DRC government sent uh, the Ministry of Minister of Environment, the Minister of Rural Development, and the Minister of Health to that area in Kasai to assess the damage and also find some ways to provide some emergency support to the people who were affected. And so what they did, they gave food, water, and medicine to the people. But uh, like I mentioned earlier, the government said that is not enough. The people in that area, especially those who lost their, lost their loved ones, the 12 people who are said to be to have died have to be compensated and they're saying the compensation must be made by the Angolan diamond firm and, and that is what their demand has been until now so they're working with the Angolan authorities now this latest information from the Angolan diamond firm will certainly uh, create some tensions among the Congolese people who have been you know pushing very hard to get compensated for the people who are affected by this this uh, disaster all right, Chris, thank you very much for that. Chris Chamringa live in Kinshasa. Now, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea is slamming the UN over a meeting about Pyongyang's latest missile tests. Pyongyang launched several weapons last month, which prompted the UN Security Council to convene an emergency meeting Friday. It ended without a joint statement. A DPRK official called the meeting a wanton encroachment on the country's sovereignty and a serious intolerable provocation. Pyongyang is also accusing the UN of applying double standards over member states' military activities. 
In the U.S., thousands of demonstrators have marched across the country to protest against increasing state restrictions on abortion. More than 600 demonstrations were held. Last month, a new Texas law banned abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy. But experts say that's before most women are aware of their pregnancy and even earlier than most abortions. The law makes no exceptions for rape or incest and it relies on ordinary citizens for enforcement. There is a reward of 10000 for successfully suing anyone who helps provide an illegal abortion. Toby Muse tells us more. We're here in downtown Washington, D.C. for the Women's March 2021. It's also being called a rally for abortion justice. Now, the tens of thousands of people who have come out are here to show their support for the continued access to safe and legal abortion. The goal for today is to get across the top-line message of abortion justice cannot wait. And there's a lot of things happening in the courts um, and in legislation. And now there's a lot happening in the streets for women and allies to have an opportunity to make their voices heard on the topic. In different events across the United States on Saturday, it's expected around 100,000 people could end up participating. Washington, D.C.'s march begins in Freedom Plaza, ending in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. Marchers want to show their support for continued access to abortion, given that the court could soon touch on a case related to abortion rights. Still, the number of protesters seen on Saturday was a far cry from what was seen back in 2017, when hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people came to Washington, D.C. to protest the election of then-President Donald Trump. Activists said Trump had shown a history of misogyny and abusive behavior towards women, something the former president has consistently denied. The Women's March organization was further boosted by the explosion of the Me Too scandal when it was revealed men in powerful positions in different industries were using their power to abuse women. As the Women's March organization grew in power, so did the problems within the organization. There were accusations of anti-Semitism and bickering amongst the leadership. Over time, the organization lost momentum and popularity. Saturday's march was in part organized in protest to what's been happening in the state of Texas, where laws passed there make it much more difficult for women to get an abortion. Activists here say that they fear that what happened in Texas could spread across the country, putting in danger a woman's access to safe and legal abortions. Toby Muse reporting for CGTN, Washington. This is Africa Live. It's coming up to quarter past the hour. Still ahead. Global COVID deaths surpass the 5 million mark. Africa is a continent of diversity. With varied climates and enchanting geographies and a people so distinct, but with a shared enduring spirit. We are at the heart of the continent to bring you the untold stories. Let's have a look. We celebrate Africa as it shapes its own destiny. Africa Live. Find your voice.
How will your world change today? What happens here? What happens there? Or what you make happen for yourself? If it matters to you, it matters to us too. Your stories are these stories that need to be told. Africa Live. Find your voice. Italy by Reuters shows the global death toll from the pandemic has stopped 5 million as the Delta variant spreads. Over half of them were reported in the United States, Russia, Brazil, Mexico and India. The U.S. has recorded the world's highest death toll of more than 700,000. Reuters reports the first 2.5 million global deaths were recorded in over a year, while it took just under eight months to bring the number to 5 million. The world saw a daily average of 8,000 deaths in the seven days that ended Friday. That's about five deaths every minute, but the rate has slowed down in recent weeks. There are more efforts to provide vaccines for poorer nations, even as richer ones have begun offering booster shots. Still, over half of the world has yet to receive a first dose. Vaccine cooperation between Egypt and China continues on a solid track. This past week, Chinese pharmaceutical Sinovac sent to Egypt 1 million doses of COVID-19 vaccines. In addition, Cairo received 3,000 liters of raw material, which will be used to produce some 4.6 million jabs domestically. Here's Adel Mahroui with more. A new shipment of Chinese vaccines arrived to Egypt this week, promising a steady flow of COVID-19 jabs to the country. One million vials of Sinovac's Coronavac landed this week at Cairo International Airport. That's in addition to 3,000 liters of vaccine raw material, which would be manufactured domestically. Sinovac's vaccine and Chinese jabs in general helped the country to speed up the vaccination process during the past few months in Egypt. We've rolled out about 16 million doses. 16 million Egyptians have so far applied to get the vaccine. There are more than 1,000 centers in Egypt that provide Chinese vaccines. In total, Egypt will be receiving 8,000 liters of the Sinovac raw biomaterial during the next few days. That should be sufficient to produce 15 million doses of the Egyptian-made vaccine with Chinese technology. The Egyptian vaccine is being distributed in all local vaccination centers, in universities and schools. It is witnessing wide acceptance, exactly like the foreign brands. There are no major complaints reported in terms of side effects. Only a slight fever and body aches have been reported, which disappears on the second day in most cases. Since the production of the Vaxera Sinovac COVID-19 vaccine began in August, Chinese jabs have been leading the nation's vaccination efforts. On Wednesday, Egyptian Health Minister Halazaid announced receiving 4.4 million doses from another Chinese pharmaceutical, Sinopharm. To curb infection rates as it enters the fourth wave of the COVID-19 pandemic, the Egyptian government is enforcing strict measures over its employees. They will be banned from entering government offices unless they are vaccinated or they show a negative PCR test every three days on their own expenses. Adel Mahroui, CGTN, Cairo. Cardiovascular disease. 
Welcome back. And uh, that was a report uh, from excerpts of a report uh, from Africa Live, uh, CGTN, uh, for earlier today. And that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal uh, Worldwide Radio Broadcast, this special edition of our program uh, for today, Sunday, October 3rd, uh, 2021. We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. This is Abayomi Azikawe. We're going to be concluding with the music of uh, Phineas Newborn Jr., uh, the great jazz piano uh, from 1963. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week. Thank you.